you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. What is the difference between the President of the United States, or actually, sorry, <clears throat> not what's the difference, what do the President of the United States, a musician, a barber, or a hairstylist, and a preacher, I got that off Facebook, I don't know whose Facebook it was, but I got that off Facebook, what do they all have in common? You can speak. What do they all have in common? Nothing? Danny says nothing. They're all famous. Okay, could be. Well known. Say it again. They all have a message. Okay. These are all good answers. I would advocate that they're all human and that they all experience trials. They all experience some type of trial and tribulation. They all experience something, like they all experience problems because they are all souls with a body that breathe in this world. And if you are a soul with a body in this world and can breathe, you are going to experience trials. I don't care who you are, you're going to experience trials. You look at the last couple presidents of the United States, not to make a political stance at all. What I'm saying, though, is they've had to encounter some serious, make some serious uh, decisions. What are you going to tell a nation when the Twin Towers fall on 9-11? How are you going to handle taking out Osama bin Laden? How are you going to handle COVID, a national crisis, a worldwide crisis? How are you going to make these decisions? These are trials. These are obstacles. Musicians, in order to get their record label up going, uh, stable and steadfast, if you will. In order for them to be successful in the music industry, they've got to overcome challenges, overcome obstacles. They're going to have to face setbacks and trials. Hairstylists, you may think that's a little weird, but the lady that cuts my hair down at Sports Clips down the road, she was telling me the other day how she just is almost like a counselor, but she's just cutting hair, and she's not even licensed. How many people come in and tell her all the baggage that they're dealing with, and it's almost like she's carrying their burdens with her. She's walking with them in the trials. And a preacher, an elder, a deacon, if you lead a family, if you're a mother or a father, you know that things will go wrong when they can. We all experience trials. Trials in this world seem to be that of the great equalizer. And if you are in here tonight, and if you are breathing, and you have a soul, James has something to say to you and to me. Now, when we face trials, when we encounter trials, we usually fall into two different extremes and two different categories. Some of us tend to go to this extreme. We tend to downplay our, uh, our trials. We push them down, we stuff them down, we, we, we kind of diminish them and say, oh, this trial's not really that bad. Oh, I mean, it could be way worse. Or, or even there are people over in Africa or in third world countries that they just don't have it as bad as I do. And so I just stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. And I'm telling you, stop stuffing your trials. It's coming out and hurting your kids. It's coming out and hurting your family. Stop stuffing your trials. Some, but don't do the other extreme either. We sometimes like to elevate our trials. We like to make mountains out of molehills. We like to let everyone around us know that we're suffering. Oh, I'm going through this trial, man. I'm really suffering. And we tend to be overdramatic sometimes. We like to elevate and let the world know. We like to let Facebook know 
that we're going through something. And so that's usually our response, but what's this middle ground way of approaching a trial? Where we don't stuff it, but we don't elevate it beyond its measure or worth. Where we simply count it all joy. James is going to make a very bold and audacious claim, and I hope you have an open heart and open mind tonight towards it. He's going to make a very bold and very audacious claim that you can have overflowing joy when you face trials. In fact, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. You, it's, it's this picture that David has in Psalm 23. You know, in Psalm 23 when he says, my cup runneth over. It's this idea that you're the cup and that God's pouring joy into you when a trial comes along and it just overflows into your situation and it changes it and it shapes you in the process. That sounds bonkers, bananas, absurd. How can you have joy, overflowing joy in a trial? Count it all Joy, my brothers. James is writing to a people who are dealing with a variety of issues. In James 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion. These people are considered the part of the diaspora. They're, they're scattered out there across their homeland. They're not exactly comfortable. They're not exactly in the ideal place and situation that they want to be in. But they're not that far either. They're still under the Roman Empire's jurisdiction. They're still dealing with issues and struggles, and, and if Rome happens to catch wind that you're a Christian, they're knocking on your door, beating down your door, taking you and burning you at the stake. And they're doing all kinds of weird ways of persecuting you, just trying to have some kind of fun out of it, much like they did Jesus. They're not only facing external threats, they're also facing internal threats, too. They're also, in, in the church, there's also a, a big gap between the rich and the poor, We'll get to that here in a little bit, and I am not getting in your pocket. But what I am saying, though, is there is, James is going to warn us about something. There's a big socioeconomic problem within the church, and so a lot of people who, in this, in this context, who have a lot of riches to their name or a lot of fame to their name, they're looking down on the less than, those that are less or in, in poverty, and they're saying, why can't you just go get a job? and they're, they're, they're treating their brother wrong. And so James is going to address that. So there's not only this internal conflict of cliques and, and classism, but there's also this external threat of, I could lose my head today because I follow Jesus Christ. And we often like to think that our trials are that, uh, very so different than that of the first century, and, and I'll give you technology. We, they don't have an iPhone. They're not, they're not able to call each other on a landline or whatever technology you use. However, putting technology aside, we're all still very human. We all still want to be fully known and fully loved. We all have the same drives and desires that they did. We're just in a different context 2,000 years later. We're not that different. We still stuff our issues and we still elevate them beyond what we should. And we still ask the same questions. God, why me? A little childish of me, going, driving down the road, uh, within the last year or two, driving in the hot July heat, I'm driving down the road and my AC goes out, stops blowing cold, and I go, why, God, why? You ever feel that? Anyone else? Be honest. Be honest. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. But that's where my faith was. It was in my circumstances. It was in my happiness. Whether or not I was comfortable 
And we often find ourselves asking God the questions, God, why me? Why would I have to go through this trial? It probably shouldn't be God, why me? It should be God, try me. If you're human tonight and you're experiencing something difficult in your life, if you are a soul with a body that breathes, James has something to say to you and something to me. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We often like to ask God questions when we're suffering. We kind of talked about that, but the probably most challenging question that God ever gets to his name is why would a holy God, a good God, a loving God, a great God, why would that kind of a God let bad things happen to, you guessed it, good people? And you can go all kinds of different angles, all different kind of pinpoints on that because all in all, we're, theologically, we're really not that good. We may think we are, but we are not that good. I am not that great of a person. And neither are you. But to that point, in the grand retrospect of what things look like in our society today, why would a holy God allow bad things to happen to good people? You and I are challenged with that, and our God is challenged with that. And and what's interesting about this passage is James is not trying to answer the question. He's absolutely not. He's not trying to dodge the question either. He's just trying to approach it from a way that's going to benefit and bless us as children of God. And so James, as the screen suggests, brings purpose to our pain. He says the testing of your faith produces things. When your faith is absolutely tested, it produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces maturity. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. The testing of your faith produces strength. The testing of your faith produces character. And he even says an interesting thing. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect on you. Let it have its full effect on you. In other words, don't squirm, don't squeal. Endure the trial. And let what comes from that be of great joy. James is not calling us to rejoice in the trial. That would be absolutely absurd. But he's revealing our greatest joy despite the trial. In the face of the trial, he's revealing our greatest joy. Next slide. Our greatest joy is that of sanctification. Looking more and more into, into being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. James doesn't want us to actually take joy in the trial. That would be absurd. Can you imagine a young couple that just had a miscarriage going to them and saying, Well, James says, count it all joy. I want to thump them in the forehead. How about you? What about a, a 12-year-old kid who comes home from school and gets the news that his father was killed in a car accident? Count it all joy, right? No! Absolutely not. But the perseverance that is built within your character, within your maturity, within your spiritual maturity from the trial, that is what you take joy in. Jesus did this very well. I know Jesus didn't like the cross. 
We should never think that Jesus liked the cross, but Hebrews 12 says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. James, James and Jesus both are calling us to not look at the trial, because if we look at the trial, we're going we're gonna to weep and, and, and just wimp out. But if we are able to look beyond the trial, above the trial, around the trial, we start to see a little bit more context. We start to be able to see God working in places that we never thought he could. Don't look at your trials, folks. Look beyond them. That's what Jesus did. And that's how he endured the cross, because there's joy set before him. James's intent is that you'd rather overflow with joy at how you're being refined by the suffering into the image of Jesus. And we know that the Bible calls this sanctification. We know that this is a, a growth process. And as Spencer mentioned this morning, you, you and I, have been, if you've been immersed in Jesus and you repented of your sins, you have the blood of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And thus starts, you experience salvation, but then we gotta be people of sanctification. We've got to be people who are always falling before our holy God, acknowledging our spiritual bankruptness and allowing him to mold us and shape us no matter what our trials or struggles might be. And then he ends up taking us home. That's what sanctification is. It's this idea of renewal, that I'm every day, little by little, I'm being transformed and I'm being moved more and more to look like the image of Jesus. I'm following in his footsteps. I'm going to act like him. I'm going to talk like him. I'm going to dress like him. I'm going to sound like him. I'm going to love like him. This is the idea of sanctification. In our world today, and this is what blows my mind. This absolutely blows my mind. Real talk. Within time, physically, we mature and grow, right? You can tell it just by the way people look, by the way you feel even. Sometimes I feel like an old man. I, I just, and coffee doesn't even do it anymore. But anyways, in this world when we physically mature, we mature through time. An 80-year-old has a different level of energy than an 8-year-old does. Right? And so uh, an 80-year-old has a different level of maturity than an 8-year-old does because they've, they've experienced 80 years of life. Physically, we mature through time. But spiritually, folks, this is why Scripture, is so, such, this is why scripture brings the hammer down so much on obedience. It's because God wants us to be renewed into the image of Jesus so much that we would be spiritually mature adults. And so physically we mature through time. Spiritually we mature through obedience. The more we're willing to be obedient, the more we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. The more I'm saying, I love the character of Christ so much and it compels me so much, I will follow no matter the trial. We aren't baptized as infants. We don't teach infant baptism. Next slide but we begin this process as an infant at our baptism. How has your faith matured since your baptism? I want you to take an honest look. Like, how has your faith honestly matured since your baptism, since you encountered Jesus? Has your faith matured? Have you actually taken, 
intentional time to work on your faith every day. I've come to the point where I hate the application, pray and read your Bible. You know why? It's because it's an absolute given. Why aren't we already doing that as a foundation? Why aren't we look, exploring other spiritual disciplines? Why aren't we actually looking into the depths of God and who he is and his character? But if we really are still spiritually immature, are we actually praying and reading our Bibles every day? Are we relying on the Holy Spirit? You can go down the list of spiritual disciplines. James might have in mind here the smelting of gold from the earth, the removal of gold, the mining of gold, and putting it through the smelting process. And the smelting process has a lot of details and odds and ends that I'm not necessarily going to go into. We don't have to really know that. But the whole premise of it is you go and mine gold out of the earth, but with it you bring impurities. You bring a lot of dirt and grime and another rock that you can't, a pickaxe is not going to do justice for you. And so you take it to a smelter or a blacksmith and you, you basically put it through the smelting process where you put it in the furnace, in the fire, and the gold, if it's truly genuine gold, it will withstand the fire and it will burn away all the impurities. This is the picture that Peter and James both, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, James chapter 1, this is the idea that they have. It's like the testing of precious metals. The fire is the trial, the gold is your faith, it's valuable like gold. So let it stand the test of the trial, because on the other side you're going to have pure gold, molded and shaped and formed into whatever image you want it to be. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. Now, if you notice the structure of this text, James is going to call out overall joy in trials, or joy through the trial, I should say, and then he's going to zoom in, much like we would on our cameras or on a microscope. He's going to zoom in on a lens and look further at our greatest need. A lot of times when, when stuff hits the fan, for lack of a better term, we think we need certain things. Our flesh is going to tell us we need certain things. Our spirit's going to tell you we're going to need another thing. But what does James say our greatest need during the trial is? Zoom in on verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says our greatest joy in the trial is that of sanctification, but he also continues and says our greatest need in the trial is prayer for wisdom. If any of you has a need, let him ask God. That's called prayer. Prayerful wisdom. Asking God, how am I going to navigate this trial, Lord? How do you want me to navigate this? How should I? It's a little weird, I know. It's not this formal ritualistic prayer we usually give, but it's something. How are you going to navigate your trials? The trials that you came in this auditorium with, how are you going to navigate them? I hope you'd consider prayerful wisdom. We know wisdom is not just knowing what to do, but it's also knowing what to do and when to do it, and oftentimes how to go about doing that thing. It's not just knowing the what, but it's also knowing the when and knowing the how. We need prayerful wisdom. I want you to notice, though, verse 5. James puts the foundation of our prayer in, in, in total 
absolute, the forefront. It's the character of God. Did you notice that? If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask God, he gives a qualifier here, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God's a generous God. God doesn't give with disappointment in his heart to you. He knows you need things. He loves you. How do you know this? Who else is going to die for the sins of the world that people might accept him? He absolutely loves you and cares about your spiritual growth and maturity. And oftentimes I think that Satan's greatest attack on our faith is not what everyone else in the culture is doing, although that plays a factor. I would advocate that Satan's greatest attack on our faith is undermining the character of our God. You think about it. If, we, if there's any ounce of doubt in which we, do, we stop trusting in the goodness and the character of our God, we start to lose steadfastness. We start to say, well, maybe i got to do it on my own now, or, or, or maybe it's just not worth it. And, and, and so we then start to drift and drift and drift. The greatest attack on our faith may not be what everyone else in the culture is doing, so we can just sit back and complain about it. Maybe, just maybe, the greatest attack on our faith is undermining the character of God. And James reminds us very graciously that God is a good God. He's generous, and he's willing to give whatever you need without disappointment and looking at you as a disappointment. I don't care what your family tells you, you're not a disappointment. You are a soul with a body that breathes and is going through trials. God loves you. He's given you his son. He's given you his spirit. He loves you. Know this. If you don't walk away with anything else, walk away that our God is good and gracious. And if you don't trust me, ask here who's been a Christian for several years. They've racked up the debt, and God has forgiven them and loved them faithfully. God loves you. You're not a disappointment. But James calls us to ask in faith. We know that faith is not walking down the aisle, you know, raising the hand, walking down the aisle. It's not this, it's not necessarily mental assent. It can start with mental assent, but it doesn't stop there. It's not this same mumbo-jumbo that we always like to say. I want to advocate that biblical faith is one of commitment, of loyalty, and allegiance to God. What is an allegiant faith? We pledge allegiance to the flag, but do we ever pledge allegiance to King Jesus? Allegiant faith says this, I will not waver and I will not leave. And if I do, if I do, I will always come back to you because you truly are my Lord and my God. I'm pledging to you, I'm not going to leave, but if I do, I will come to my senses and I will come back to you, my Lord and my God. I will be faithful. I will be allegiant to you. I will stick with you through the bitter end because you have stuck with me through the bitter end. Sometimes I think we misrepresent faithfulness. Sometimes we have depicted over this, our time with church culture, we've depicted that faith or faithfulness is this white picket fence, have it all together mantra. As long as I have my ducks in a row and I show up on Sunday morning and, or three times a week or whatever, you, you go down the list, you make your own list in your head. As long as I'm doing these things, I'm, I'm in the clear. I got it all together. 
none of us in here have it all together. I'll be the first to admit it. What I would advocate, though, faithfulness, and if you're taking notes, write this down. I don't have it on a slide. I should have put it on a slide. What if faithfulness is not so much white picket fence having it all together? What if it's more of fall down seven times and by the grace of God standing up eight? I will not leave and I will not waver, but if I do, I will always come back to you because you are my Lord and my God. We need people of allegiant faith, of this loyalty and commitment to God, not just this mental ascent or just being able to say the same mumbo-jumbo we've always done in church. We need people of allegiant faith. You know James probably experienced this struggle. James chapter 1 and Jude chapter 1. Verse 1, you know James and Jude are brothers of Jesus. What's fascinating about this is James and Jude both say, they introduce themselves in their letters and they say, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not brother, but servant. I love that. I absolutely adore that. Because in all this aspect, James and Jude, when they come to know who Jesus truly is, they're willing to say, I'm a servant, I'm not his brother. I am no match for him. We know that his brothers doubted him before his resurrection, but after the resurrection, something clicked, something flipped and said, he's Lord and he's God. And now James probably, I'm, I'm, I'm betting, he speaks out of his own personal experience here. He warns us about doubt. He warns us about double-mindedness more so. Doubt's not a bad thing as long as you deal with it. Don't let doubt deconstruct your faith, but deal with the doubt. But James is warning about double-mindedness where you have just, you straddle the fence or you dip your toe in the pool and you're still claiming it. You're still naming and claiming the title, but you're dipping your toe in the water and you're not willing to jump all into the deep end. Are we double-minded? James illustrates this as a wave of the sea going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You ever been out in the ocean? Or even just seen a river after a boat goes by? Waves are going everywhere. You can't stop them. And on the sea, in the same way, winds change direction all the time, and waves are just going mindlessly and endlessly, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's what it's like to be double-minded, and that's why we have probably a lot of problems as people of faith, is because we're probably we may just very well be double-minded. Elijah illustrated this very well. We should be familiar with Elijah, the contest at Carmel. He asked the prophets of Baal, he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long? How long are you gonna go? If the Lord is God, serve him, but if Baal is God, serve him. But make a decision. Stop straddling the fence. Stop dipping your toe in the water and calling it good. The Lord is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. It's interesting that James is an endless rocking of the boat. And to Elijah, double-mindedness is a limp. It's a crutch. It looks weak and pathetic. How long will we go limping between two different opinions, church? 
before we finally snap and something clicks and says, I've got to be single-mindedly focused in allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, again, James has moved from trials and joy in the trial. <clears throat> he's zoomed in on our greatest need, and he's going to zoom in again. He's going to zoom in again on a specific trial that these people are facing, and then he's going to pan back out in verse 12. So verse 9 through 11, he zooms back in on a specific trial. He speaks directly to them, and then he's going to pan back out and call everyone back home. He's going to call us home too. Verse 9, James says to the, to the brothers in the dispersion, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Next slide. James moves from our greatest joy to our greatest need, and now he's moving into our greatest hope in the trial. Our God is so generous. He gives us joy in the trial. He gives us our greatest need, and now he gives us hope in the trial. And James says that our greatest hope is God's promises. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial or allegiant under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised, which God has promised to those who love him. Our greatest hope is God's promises. And in this context, it's interesting because James puts the rich and the poor side by side. And you know who he sides with? Who's he side with, church? The poor, yeah. When, J when James puts the rich and the poor side by side, he sides with the poor. It's kind of interesting. We should take note of this. James sides with the poor. Now, James is not against people having money. He's not against people having wealth and riches and everything. James is not a, not a, not a problem with him. But it's how they're using that tool of wealth. They're using it to oppress their poor brothers in Christ. And I'm not saying poor woe is them. I'm saying they're literally poor. They're dirt poor. And they're using their tools of wealth not to be generous or bl a blessing, but they're using it to just simply like oppress them and put them down. We have this issue in America. We do things for tax write-offs, but not necessarily for generosity. What that ultimately promotes, I would advocate that oppression, I'm kind of like, this is on the fly here, this was not, this is free. Take it for what it's worth. I would advocate that oppression, in all honesty, oppression is simply allowing, when you want to oppress somebody, that's when your possessions have started to possess you. And James calls this out. Don't let your possessions possess you. Let the poor boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. The rich man in his pursuits will fade away and James loves us enough to warn us before we go any further with our pursuits in life. He loves us enough to not let our possessions possess us. The question becomes, do we love the promises of God more than our possessions?
do we? Do we when, we, when we drive down the road and we come to that street corner and we see that rugged old person who's holding up a cardboard sign, do we look at, the, at them and say, oh, man, this unemployment rate is insane. You, there's all kinds of jobs everywhere. Just go get a job. Do we have that kind of a smug attitude? Within our body of believers here at Valley View, do we just kind of hang out in our cliques and don't go talk to somebody else? because they are from a different part of town, or they go to a different school, or, or for whatever reason you want to fill in the blank with, but we have our cliques. Do we stay in our cliques? Do we ever throw the checkbook at something and call it good? Have we ever said the phrase, money talks? If money talks louder than your God, Possessions possess you. If money talks louder than our God, your possessions possess you, and James warns about that, your pursuits will fall. We can just throw money at it. That's kind of the attitude sometimes. And it'll be okay. But do we love God and his promises more than our possessions? We'll kind of close with this illustration. The man in Scripture that I think really understood this was Joseph in Genesis. We know the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph didn't necessarily oppress anybody, but man, the promises of God are present in his life, especially at the very end. We know the story. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He's, sent, he's sent kind of in exile almost, but he's abandoned by his family. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's treated as property, and he finds himself in Potiphar's household, or Potiphar's court, if you will, and then, working for Potiphar, being a good servant, he gets falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife. I mean, in, in today's age, Joseph would have had to register as a sex offender if he got convicted. This is serious stuff. So he gets thrown in the prison. He goes from Potiphar's court to the prison and we're told he's forgotten in prison. He has all these dreams and interactions and, and the Lord's with him. But he's still in the prison. He's looking at the same walls day in and day out. And then, within 10 or 13 years, he gets restored back to the palace. He's the second in command of Egypt. His brothers come because there's a famine. And it's right before their, their dad, Jacob, dies. And so they send Jacob on him, and, and they, they reunite. And then finally, Jacob dies, and, and, and then the brothers say, Oh, no, <laughs> Joseph's in power. He knows what we did to him. Dad's dead. Oh, we got to find a way to convince him not to, get, to go easy on us because he could, he could throw us in the prison. And so they come before him and they say, you know, Dad said be careful with, with this. And Joseph says, guys, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? I'll let you work this out with God. But Joseph tells his brother two things at the end of his life. He says, everything, absolutely everything you meant for me was evil, but God meant it for good. Doesn't matter the trial I've been through, I count it all joy because God meant it for good. And secondly, you know why Joseph is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? It's because of this moment right here in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph says, Everything you meant for me was evil. God meant it for good. And secondly, I'm about to die. When I do die, 
take my bones with you because God has promised to our forefathers that he will deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. Joseph responds with the promises of God at the end of his life. After 10 to 13 years in prison, he's able to respond with the promises of God because that's what got him through. His God was so big and so generous and so gracious, whether he was in the prison or the palace, so much, take my bones with you because I want God's promise to be fulfilled in my life. How many of us would be like that? Do we really love the promises of God? Do we cherish the promises of God? Do we hang on to the promises of God when we go through trials? My challenge for you tonight, next slide, last slide. My challenge for you is to be a James, be a Joseph, be an Elijah. Be like them. Find your greatest joy in sanctification. Find your greatest need in prayerful wisdom. Rest your hope in the promises of our generous and gracious God. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into various trials. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Go be a James, go be a a Joseph, go be an Elijah. It doesn't matter if you're the President of the United States. It doesn't matter if you're a hairdresser. It doesn't matter if... You're a musician, it doesn't matter if you're a preacher holding up a piece of baloney. May we, at Valley View today, may we be encouraged by how our God uses our trials to shape us. May we be overwhelmed at how generous our God is, and may we fully hope in God and his promises for our life. Tonight, we've addressed double-mindedness. If you feel like you've been double-minded in your faith, and we will waver and stray from time to time, That's a given. This world's always pulling and tugging at us. But if you feel like you've wavered in your faith and you need to make that publicly known, don't hesitate to come forward. We've all been there. We are a family here, church. And if we're really a genuine family, we'll welcome you back. Tonight, if tonight's the night that you say, I want to go all in, I'm not dipping my toe in the water anymore, I'm jumping in the deep end, all in, I'm repenting of my sins, I'm being baptized into Christ, we'll help you make that happen tonight. If you have a need this evening, come forward as we stand, as we sing.